You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Okay, well, uh, here we are in Jude this morning, and um, I think that I want to read the whole letter to you. Uh, because it's meant to be read all at once. And uh, a lot of what I'm going to say, I want you to be able to say, yes, I remember Jude saying this in the letter. So let me read it to you. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, Though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, it would be amazing if people kept reading after all that, Uh, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, He did not pressure to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the servant, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, the con- on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, Following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people 
devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building up yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy and fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory and great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand your word, uh, for without your spirit, uh, we're lost. And so open the eyes of our hearts that we might comprehend what you are saying to us uh, through Jude today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is uh, not, uh, I wonder what you would think if uh, instead of, uh, if I put the letter of Jude uh, in the adventurer word. And so that's what you uh, would read. I think that people would be taken aback uh, by that. Uh, And it doesn't get any better, especially after last week when we talked about those who who were teaching uh, false things had crept into the life of the church. They were masquerading as Christians, but were in fact perverting the grace of God and denying our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. Jude says that in light of these false teachers, we must contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contending in biblical terms looks like rebuking, praying, teaching, preaching, living lives that demonstrate who we are in Jesus Christ, and even separating ourselves from them. In a word, it means being contentious, but of course, contentious over the right things. What we didn't talk about last week is why does it matter? Can't we just let them be and not really need to say anything? After all, if what they're teaching and preaching is not of God, it's destined to fail anyway. Jude says, no, you must contend because these false teachers who have crept into the church will lead others into untruth and in turn to their own destruction. It's not a matter of defending God, because God can do that himself. It's a matter of caring for others in the church who may be led astray by these creepers. But more than leading others astray, there are deeper dangers that lie close at hand. So this morning, I want to talk about why is Jude making such a big deal out of this false teaching? Well, in the first instance, Jude says in verse four that a church can actually lose the gospel. That's what he says here. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God. Well, the grace of God here is... The gospel, right? When we say the gospel, we we mean the person and work of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And they've taken that message and turned it into a license for sin. 
And so rather than the gospel leading people away from sin, they're using the gospel to lead people into it. They've perverted it. They've taken it and turned it into something that it's not meant to be. What they're saying in a word is that God permits you to sin. He allows for it. He wants you to fulfill your own desires and needs because after all, he's just going to forgive you. And when we do this in the life of the church, we are almost always surrendering to secular pressure. The church is never on the cutting edge of anything. We're never out in front when it comes to anything negative. We're always following the culture. As I mentioned last week, that what ends up happening is whatever philosophical fad of the day is, people will try to attach Christianity to it in an effort to make Christianity more appealing. But eventually that philosophical fad is going to go out of Though, right? I mean, eventually that uh, it's going to go by the wayside. And if Christianity has attached itself to it, it means that Christianity, too, uh, will suffer the consequences of uh, hitching itself uh, to the falling star of whatever philosophical idea is in vogue during the day. And pressure from the culture is often brought to bear on the church. Uh, There are many instances uh, of this, especially in the latter part of the 20th century. I don't know about you, but uh, the 20th century really wasn't a great century. Uh, It was in terms of amazing things like technological advancements. Uh, But when it comes to uh, Christianity, in some ways, you could say it was a hard century for Christians. Uh, More Christians were martyred in the 20th century than all previous centuries combined. And uh, you saw uh, really overt pressure uh, from governments and and other places uh, to really attempt to eradicate Christianity or to at least put it uh, in a place where uh, a little box where it couldn't get out. And a lot of things that were happening in the 20th century, I think in the latter part of the 20th century, uh, the real strong movement to try to make God uh, neuter in in gender. And so... uh, the, the move that we weren't allowed to call God Father, that we had to call God simply God, uh, or we might even go so far as to call God Mother. Now, on the one hand, I can understand that, especially pastorally, uh, if you're constantly hammering away at the fatherhood of God, and there's somebody maybe in your congregation uh, who had a terrible relationship with their father, um, that, could be, that could be difficult. Uh, but a lot of pastoral work ought to be done in order to assure them that even though they had a bad father in this world, that they have a heavenly father who is perfect and, and loves you in the way that you've longed to be loved. And so what a joy it is that, that you have a heavenly father, uh, which actually uh, allows you to deal with your bad dad uh, in a way that is marked by grace and understanding. Uh, But instead, there seems to be a move to kind of throw uh, calling God Father out. But of course, if we do that, that's in direct opposition to the command of Jesus himself. When he he says, when you pray, say what? Our Father. So we're actually not able to dispense with calling God Father. Why? Because Jesus says, call God Father, especially when you pray. And when cultural ideas come into the life of the church, they will destroy the church. 
Uh, Dick Lucas, who was for decades the rector of St. Helens Bishopsgate in, in the city of London, was speaking with Professor Earl Ellis, who was a famous New Testament scholar. In fact, is probably one of the foremost uh, experts on the epistle of Jude. And in speaking to him in 1994, over almost 26 years ago, uh, Professor Ellis said, when a church gets as far as the Episcopal Church has gotten in the United States in licensing immorality, you will find that the Spirit of God departs. Here's a New Testament scholar observing that there does come a point when even a denomination can push so far that they lose the very Spirit of God. And that's the second thing that Jude is trying to warn us against. Not only can a church lose the gospel, the church can actually lose the Holy Spirit of God. It was a question in 1994 of whether or not the Spirit dwelt within the Episcopal Church. But in 2021, uh, over 20, almost 26 years later, I think that we can see that the answer is largely yes. Ichabod, the Spirit of God has left us as a denomination. Not individual congregations, mind you, but as a denomination, I do think that God has withdrawn his blessing and anyone who does not go along with its false teachings but receive those who have creeped in, into your homes or give them any greeting, greeting actually takes part in their wickedness, as Second John tells us. After all, how can someone blaspheme God, work counter to his will as expressed in his word, and expect to be blessed? It just doesn't hold up. As such, we should not be surprised by the precipitous decline of the Episcopal Church and others within Western Christianity who have turned their backs on God. Those who engage in this sort of teaching that Jude talks about, it's not only to lose the gospel, but to lose the very Holy Spirit of God himself. I don't know about you, but that causes my spine to be chilled. That's a chilling prospect that this could actually happen, which is why Jude uses such strong language in order to get the attention of those that he's writing to, to say, do you understand what's at stake? These false teachings have the most serious of consequences. They are not simply agree to disagree issues. And this is why Jude uses the language of destruction. False teaching that is contrary to God's word destroys the church. Sin from what within destroys the church, but stuff that but pressures from without can destroy it as well. As I mentioned, that you know, China has tried its darndest to destroy the church of God, and yet, yet what has been the result? Right, leaps and bounds. I, I mean, they, they're the most Christian nation in the world. There are more Christians in China than anywhere else. The government can't put out the gospel. The government can't stamp out the spirit of God. The danger to the church in China, as it is for us, are those who have crept in and are within and begin to sow seeds of false teaching that might actually take root. Uh, that's what's happened to us here. Uh, it is remarkable to me when I was living over in England, uh, the Church of England had access to all of, the mo all of the major public institutions in the nation. So if you had an elementary school that was just down the road from your church in your parish, 
the rector had the right to go into that school at will and lead assemblies and engage with the children and to do all of those things. And yet what I found is that very few ministers in the Church of England actually took advantage of that. And I used to laugh because I said, you know, y'all aren't willing, but have the ability. But it seems to me that in America, we have the willingness, but not the ability. The two don't go hand in hand. And so here's actually the government in the United Kingdom saying to the established church, you're welcome to go in. The government's actually encouraging Christianity into the schools, and yet why is, this, why is the church ineffective? Not because of the government, but because the church's unwillingness to go. It's unwillingness to go in and share Jesus Christ with these children. And of course, those who are false teachers in the life of the church, it's hard to discern who they are because 95% of what they say is true. And I learned at a very young age that if you want to tell a good lie, make 70% of it true. Because it's hard to parse out, well, I know what they said about this is true, and so maybe what they're saying about this is true. The key is really whether or not their teaching leads people away from immorality or encourages them into it. False teaching always precedes immorality. Immorality is the first thing to come in the wake of false teaching. But of course, what Jude is doing here is that he's raising the issue of immorality beyond the personal level. The issue in Jude's day are the same as today. And he's saying that immorality will destroy the church, not simply the individual. So you can't say, well, that's just one amongst many. That immorality in the church gets, let, gets raised to a corporate level. So he's saying uh, that division comes from within the church. And it's coming from people who are rather charismatic. So in verse 8 we read, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams. So they're super spiritual type people that, that we might even say uh, are charismatic, that God has given them a vision, God has given them a dream, uh, they're people of authority, and we might want to listen to them. But these things that they're teaching, these dreams that they're dreaming, verse 19a tells us that they bring division, they split the church. Or in verse 18, they're scoffers. They hold the Bible in contempt. Uh, just a couple years ago, we had a bishop standing where I'm standing today who said that the Advent had a wooden idea of the Bible. Well, that's scoffing. And so, as it was in Jude's, in Jude's day, it is in our, ours today. Well, what drives these people? Well, verses 16 and 18 tell us. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. And in verse 18, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. So they're following their own desires, their own instincts, and they're actually devoid of the Spirit. Judah's saying here is they're not being, the Spirit of God does not even dwell within them. And so even when they say, I've dreamed this dream and God's Spirit has given this to me, the Holy Spirit gets blamed for a lot of things the Holy Ghost would never do. 
But of course, we know that temptations to immorality come from within. They come from within. I wonder if you'll look with me at Mark chapter 7, at verse 20, to hear what Jesus has to say about this very thing. Jesus says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For what from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile the person. Notice that the blame for our wrongdoings is never placed on the society or the culture around us. Have you ever noticed that in the Bible? The blame for our own immorality and sinfulness is not placed on the society and culture around us. But where is it placed? On ourselves. On the, on, on the sin that lurks within us. Now, the society may be no help whatsoever. Uh, it's not the spark, though, but it certainly can provide fuel for the fire. Mark 7 is primarily about the uselessness of ritual Christianity. So people who have all the trappings of the faith outwardly, uh, the whitewashed sepulchers, but inwardly are rot and bone. And of course, uh, our tradition can easily fall into this. Because if it's just about the outward conformity, if it's just about the rituals that say we do in church on Sunday, then that kind of Christianity is totally useless. It goes through the forms, but not believing, not experiencing the power of God. The outside may be cleaned, but the inside is left untouched. Now, um, back in 2004, there was a survey of youth and religion done by Christian Smith, uh, who was at Chapel Hill and now is at the University of Notre Dame. And, uh, and so he surveyed all, uh, he surveyed teens all over the United States. It's one of the most thorough uh, things that uh, has ever been done about religious life in the lives of teenagers. And primarily he broke them down into, he was looking for people who identified as Protestant, but he also broke them down uh, by denomination and ask them certain questions like, do you believe in God? And of all the teens that, they, that he uh, interviewed, uh, those who identified as Episcopalian, 72% of teenagers in the Episcopal Church said they believed in God. Now, of all the teens, the at-large teens that he interviewed, 85% said that they believed in God, which means you're more likely to believe in God if you don't go to an Episcopal church and just stay at home on Sunday. Uh, and it, it, it really does uh, go from there. Um, when it comes to closeness to God, uh, only 22% of teenagers in the Episcopal church feel like they actually have a personal relationship with God. Uh, only 35% believe uh, in an afterlife uh, in the Episcopal church. Uh, when it comes to the importance of faith, only 40% of teenagers believe uh, that faith is important. Uh, for those who have committed to live life for God, uh, 56%, that's pretty decent, uh, although uh, amongst all teens, it's also 56%. Um, 
Uh, reading uh, the Bible alone once a week or more, only 8% of teenagers said that they read the Bible at least once a week uh, or more. Uh, prayer, prayer alone a few times a week or more, only 45% of teens uh, said that um, they prayed. Um, uh, express religious beliefs at school, 27% of Episcopal teens said that they did. Um, and of course, it, it, it just uh, shared faith with person not of their faith, actually 47%. Uh, so uh, one out of two uh, is not bad. Uh, but I guess what I would say is that if you continue to go through this survey uh, from Christian Smith, what you'll find is that the culture is doing a better job of evangelizing our kids than the Episcopal Church is. And that's a frightening thing. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that to, to attack uh, the Episcopal Church because there are plenty of other Western denominations that are in the same boat. I'm just holding it up like Jude is here as a fact. Like this is, this is what's happening in the life uh, of our own experience as Episcopalians. And yet most of these children are experiencing a real ritualistic worship from week to week. That's what dominates the Episcopal Church. And for some reason, it's not changing the inside. And, and it's not getting to the heart of the matter, what Jesus says, that it's not about what's going on around you and the outside. Uh, it's about a real heart change uh, by the power of the Spirit through a relationship with Jesus Christ uh, that is what changes somebody. But even if we are regenerate in Christ, we still find indwelling sin remains, don't we? The infection of sin doth remain. I like how the articles put that. The infection can easily and quickly flare up in any of us. When we come to faith in Jesus, God takes up residence with us by his spirit. So as Luther tells us, we are simul justus et peccator. That is, we're both sinful and justified at the same time. And Jude is acknowledging this in the letter. That's why he's going to such great lengths, because he knows what lies in our own hearts. He's not saying, well, don't do this because you're better than these false teachers. But know yourself because you can easily fall into the trap as they have. But if God's spirit dwells within us, does the spirit drive out sin or does sin drive out the spirit? Well, listen to Galatians 5, 16. Galatians 5, 16 tells us this. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But of course, all Paul is doing here in Galatians is he's saying what he said in Romans 7, right? The very thing that I want to do is the thing I can't do, and the thing that I don't want to do is what I find myself doing. And I know it's true that peace is certainly a mark of the Christian life. But do you know that conflict within your heart is also a mark of the Christian life? War within is the mark of a Christian. There is a fight for the Christian with temptation and sin. For the non-Christian, it's just who they are. There is no conflict. For the Christian, there's a fight on. And so the Christian says... I'm not going to give in. I'm going to fight. So this is why Paul tells Timothy in chapter 4 in his second letter, watch yourself, keep an eye on yourself, 
Don't be surprised by yourself. The old Adam, the old man, is always looking for a few crumbs of comfort. Don't you find that? Now, what we're always looking in society is certainly helpful in this, uh, to find a way to continue to feed the old man. You know, I'm not getting a lot out of church these days, and so I'm just not going to go. That's throwing a few crumbs to the old Adam. You know, uh, I know that this is wrong, but everybody else is doing it, and so I'm just going to go along to get along. Or even in more extreme cases, this happened to me in college. I remember lying in bed one night, and, uh, and I thought to myself, you know, I've been such a good, faithful Christian for so long. Um, it's kind of time to live for me for a little bit. Have you ever had that thought? You know, I've been faithful for so long, and, and I'm just going to indulge just a little bit. Well, that's the old Adam within all of us saying, feed me, feed the beast. So the real danger for the Christian is from within, not simply from without. And so when false teachers creep in, they're actually feeding crumbs to the old Adam, aren't they? And especially if they're in the guise of Christianity, that helps us think, well, maybe it's not so bad. It's a sort of sanctified crumb feeding to the old Adam. But we also see that the threat is not only within, but from without. In verse 7, we're told that just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Well, I, I wouldn't presume to know that or say that y'all know the story of, story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but I'll just give it to you in brief. It's uh, in um, uh, Genesis around chapters 11, 12, and 13. And uh, Lot and uh, Abraham, uh, they have div- they've got huge wealth. And Abraham uh, very m- magnanimously uh, says to Lot, let's divide it up and you decide where you want to go. And if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And uh, we'll both prosper and it'll be great. And uh, there, Lot looks out into the Jordan Valley. Well, actually, I'm going to go back because I, I think it's important to, uh, to, to read. Um, uh, let's see. Yeah, uh, Genesis, uh, rather, 13. Um, uh, Genesis 13, verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt and the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. So it's this beautiful place. And I I am going to make a little footnote here because verses five through seven, this is this is how they make sense. First. He says, I want you to know that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, destroyed those who did not believe. So he's talking about the Israelites in Egypt. And then he talks about who? In verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 6. I need readers. The angels, right? The angels who, who uh, tried to overthrow. And then in verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah. I wonder if you can tell me what the commonality between those three things are. The Israelites who have been brought out of Egypt, the angels who attempted to overthrow heaven, and Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 13 gives us a little clue. When he looked out, what did the Jordan Valley look like? 
look like the Garden of Eden? Well, I'll just tell you. All three of these enjoyed a special and great blessing. Right? The Israelites being delivered from slavery and being brought into the promised land. The angels who had a very special relationship with God. And Sodom and Gomorrah who lived in a land that was like the Garden of Eden. So these are all three groups who have inherited a significant blessing. And yet in all three cases, what happened? There were those who did what? Rebelled against it. Took it for granted. Overthrew it. And I wonder if, if Jude is not uh, dealing with some of what we deal with today. Notice what he says about the Exodus I want to remind you that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Have you ever heard someone say, well, Andrew, you're talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't apply to us today. That's a different God. Well, what is, who does Jude say delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt? Jesus. Jesus delivered the people out of Egypt. And so in the same way, Jude is making the point here that you can be an inheritor of a special blessing and rebel against it. And that's what happened here in Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, what happened with Lot is he found himself in a city where social conventions no longer were in sync with Christian teaching. And God would ultimately say, uh, it's an, a remarkable story, so I would encourage you to continue to read on from Genesis 13 uh, about the bargaining that Lot tried to do with God to save Sodom and Gomorrah um, and his ultimate uh, rescue uh, by Abram and then even Lot's wife being turned into a pillar of salt uh, by looking back. Um, but uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, Why? It says it here in verse 7. What, what were they doing? Speak up, please. They were indulging in what? Sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire. That was what ultimately brought about their destruction. Now, um, you can go back and you can, see, you can see the story about the ministering angels who came to Lot in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah or uh, came out and said, uh, give us your visitors in order that we might know them. And it wasn't like, hey, we're going to go down to the corner and have a beer. It was, uh, it's a rather graphic uh, story. And Lot doesn't make anything better by offering up uh, his daughter. Uh, but... Uh, nonetheless, go back and you can read that. So it was a pretty wicked place. Uh, but if you go and look, and I'm not going to do it now, but go back and look at Ezekiel 16. Not now, but write down Ezekiel 16, beginning with verse 49. Because Ezekiel tells us that Sodom and Gomorrah did not help the poor and needy. They were proud and arrogant, and they were overfed and unconcerned. Sexual immorality is always the product of something. It's never the thing itself. And so I, I would, there's a, a remarkable lady named Rosario 
Champagne Butterfield. What a name that is. Uh, and she was a tenured English professor at Syracuse Uni University who had spent uh, many years uh, living in uh, a lesbian relationship, and she uh, was the primary faculty sponsor for all the uh, gay and lesbian clubs at Syracuse University. And she wrote a story called The, 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 um, the Story of an Unlikely Convert, where she comes to faith in Jesus. And when she reflects back on her decisions concerning sexuality, she sees very clearly that it wasn't about sexuality. It was about her own pride. And it was about control. And, and it was about her uh, necessitating freedom uh, in her whole life. And so the way that she was ministered to was not uh, by attacking the sexuality. Right? It's not enough to say you shouldn't do that or this is, this is uh, unthinkable, uh, although those things may be true. But really, it comes from within, right? Out of the heart, and it springs from something different. I mean, that's true of any sexual immorality, regardless of it, uh, that um, an adulterous affair. I mean, what you're doing in an, an adultery, one, is that you're, it's prideful that you're saying, I'm going to take this because I want it. It's covetousness. Uh, and even in the act of uh, adultery, uh, what you're really doing is committing murder. Because if you're lying with somebody else who's not your husband or wife, uh, you're behaving as if their husband or wife are dead. Right? So the, there's a whole lot that is going on before you even get uh, to sexual immorality. And Judah's trying to say that. So you have to look really closely, and it's, it's not just about sexual immorality. It's actually what begins to feed the old man that is within all of us who are Christians. But of course, Jude and even Second Peter, uh, I think it's chapter 3, uh, say that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is sexual immorality, and that's ultimately what pushed it over the edge. And of course, we're also drawing the distinction between temptation and practice. There's a great difference between being tempted. And so I don't want anyone here this morning to think that I'm maligning anyone who is tempted uh, in any sort of sexual way, because that's every single one of us. We're all in the same boat. Uh, the difference is when temptation uh, goes over and actually is to be put into effect. And Jude uses the example of Sodom because it's the same problem that confronts the churches of his day. The false teachers are encouraging others to sexual immorality and even uh, worse practices. And here Jude understands that it is really difficult to live as a faithful believer in a world and even a denomination that stands in opposition to God's word. Um, as I said in our first class, Second Peter and Jude are really uh, twin books. Uh, and I want to uh, look over at Second uh, Peter uh, chapter uh, two, verses six through ten. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteousness soul, his righteous soul over their lawless deeds, and he saw and heard. 
Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the right unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So what does it look like to live in this world? And what is, what is Peter saying and what is Jude saying? Uh, in a word, it means to be ashamed, to actually be bothered, uh, even to be tormented by these things. I think Jude is saying, never be ashamed of being ashamed. I think that that's probably something that we've lost in our culture, that nobody is shamed or ashamed uh, anymore. And I'm not talking about false, false shaming. I mean, I think that there are many things that we carry as a, a burden of guilt that the Lord Jesus Christ has taken from us and that we ought to be free of shame, especially those things concerning our past. So if you have a, a history of sexual immorality and you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus has taken on your shame and guilt upon the cross. He's taken it upon himself. And when those feelings of shame and guilt, and this all happens to all of us, doesn't it? But in those, moments, those quiet moments where we're lying in bed at night or when we're just sort of letting our minds wander, those particular events come flooding back into our mind and it's as if we're there all over again and we're completely undone. And what do we do? We flee to Jesus. We say, Lord, I know that this was nailed to the cross, but here's that old Adam saying, hey, I want to show you that slideshow again. And you rebuke the old Adam. I'm going to fight this. I'm not going to get in, give in. I am a daughter. I'm a son of the king. I am in Jesus Christ. But there is a type of shame that is healthy. Where we ought to be embarrassed. We ought to be ashamed of certain things. Lot's sensitivity levels were still high because of his faithfulness. If Lot had compromised, his shame levels and sensitivity to the unrighteousness would have gone down as it has in our day and age. We'll, we will be overwhelmed by the forces within and the forces from without unless we are warned because this is how the church is destroyed. Now, if we were to advise the devil on how to bring the church down, what would we say? C.S. Lewis did a really good job in screw tape letters, didn't he, of advising uh, how uh, one demon telling another demon how to bring the church down. Well, let me read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 11 beginning with the 13th verse. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And so if Satan masquerades as an angel of light... Why should we be surprised that his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness? Satan is busy putting men and women into ministry. Those who put themselves up for ministry uh, in the past have not necessarily been honest about their theological convictions. Uh, they've practiced the deceit that the Bible is talking about here. And that deceit was manifested in what? Not being honest. Not, not actually saying, who is Jesus to you? Giving just a good enough answer in order to get through the process. But now, of course, when this deceitfulness now reigns within the life of a church, 
in order for a good man or a good woman to get into ministry, what do they now have to do? They have to practice the very schemes of the devil and be deceitful themselves. And the faithful will often mistakenly take on the same tactics of the devil and they will never work. Can you imagine Jude being ordained in the Episcopal Church? If he went in and said what he said in this letter, not a chance. Not a chance. And so Jude is warning us not to give in to the same schemes. Soft peddling, lying, being deceitful in order to try to go along, to get along is actually playing into the very hand of the devil himself. Those are the tactics that he uses. But no, what does Jude say? Contend. Contend. And why do we contend? Because if we're given over to this false teaching, if we allow this to get a foothold in our own church or in any other church, we're in jeopardy of losing the very gospel of Jesus Christ and for the very spirit of God to depart from our presence. So why does Jude make such a big deal out of this? Because it's a really big deal. It's a really, really big deal. Now, uh, I think you've noticed I've not soft pedaled this anyway uh, today, and, and, and I don't intend to. I think Jude speaks for himself. Uh, and for those of you who are not members of the Advent who are visiting us today, uh, I won't apologize uh, for God's word, uh, but uh, it gets better in the letter as we go on. Uh, I can promise you that uh, we are going to get to the great hope that is ours in Jesus Christ uh, probably in two weeks, uh, if not next week. So I'm just going to leave it right there and ask if there are any questions. Yes, Jane. You said um, that there's a big line between temptation and repentance. Yes. And wouldn't you also say there's a big line that people cross the line of practice what they've been tempted to do and how they respond? That's right. Yeah. So there's a line between, I'm just repeating for the recorder, there's a line between temptation and repentance that's it's very clearly crossed. And then there is a, um, a there's a, there's also the response of the person who is given into their temptation and how they respond. So the problem that Jude is encountering is that they're responding with actually saying, this is who God wants me to be. And God has said, I can be this. Rather than the Christian who often finds themselves giving into temptation saying, Lord, save me. I've made a mistake. Now, the problem is the little steps along the way. Now, sexual sin in some ways is a little bit more obvious than other sins that are going to lead to the sexual immorality. And this is why it's so very hard and, and why the church is so important that we care for one another, because it never starts as sexual immorality. And sexual immorality is actually pretty easy to gauge. I mean, Tim Keller uses the very graphic but right uh, illustration saying, you know, no one has ever committed sexual immorality and said, hey, wait a minute, you're not my wife. That never happened. But pride, it's very hard to catch yourself in, in pride or covetousness or, or whatever it might be. And, um, and that really takes the work uh, of the spirit. And ultimately what happens is a hardening of the heart that Hebrews talks about and that it can get to the place of, of just being so hardened that there's no room left for repentance. And so I think that with those that I encounter that, um, that have crossed the line and not only 
sanctified their behavior, but actually have gone about teaching it, I'm very fearful that, and often will pray, that God would give them room for repentance because I'm afraid there might not be. And again, we're not talking about the individual. We're talking about what they're teaching. Uh, We're talking about those types of things that actually Jude is saying the most caring thing that you can do is to contend, to actually stand, stand up to it. Well, okay. I'm going to get an email, which I would welcome. All right, let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, a hard word uh, for us this morning and in many ways uh, makes us think about, I hope, our lives and, uh, and where uh, we have found ourselves uh, straying and hardening our hearts. Uh, but Lord, we thank you that you're gracious. And for those of us who have put our trust in you, uh, your spirit dwells within us. And so, Lord, we pray uh, that you would convict us where we are in error. But Lord, that you would sear on our hearts uh, the truth of who we are in Jesus Christ, that he came into the world to save sinners. Full stop. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.